You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Elijah was a wooden Indian standing by the door. He fell in love with an Indian maid over in the antique store. Elijah just stood there and never let it show. So she could never answer yes. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 102. And I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And I'm also happy, ecstatic, yay, even glad to introduce for the first time on this podcast, Dr. Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College. Michael, how are you doing? I'm uh, very good. Thank you. Woo-hoo. I'm a doctor. And a minimalist response, as our listeners were hoping for. All right, and also joining us, uh, David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College. I almost said Crown College again, David. Central Christian College of Kansas. David, how are you doing this afternoon? Oh, pretty decent and consumed with envy. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, like I've said before, I mean, I it, it's now a year since I defended, and I don't miss the other side of that. So I, <laughs> I, I changed I won't even my, pretend. I changed my email signature to say PhD, but I had to I had to email the UGA graduate school and I cut it out of the signature for that. Nice. I, I, didn't, I didn't want them to uh to uh think I was getting too big for my britches. <laughs> Cuz they but will smack you down. I I knew a guy in graduate school who after he earned his masters, everyone in the department began to refer to him as Oh, I can't remember his last name. His first name was Russ. Russ something rather M-A. <laughs> that's funny. Well, better than calling him Master Something. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Do we have any user feedback? I know we've gotten some Facebook traffic, some comments on the blog. We, we, got, uh, an email. And- we got an email this morning about an hour and a half ago from a new listener. Ooh. Steve Smith. He says well, go ahead and read it because I haven't looked at it yet. He says he is trying to work through all the past episodes, at least those that jump out in terms of my immediate interest, and I will tell him what I tell everybody, which is ignore those first five to ten, please. <laughs> <laughs> Since he's also enjoyed our two most recent episodes, 99 and 100, 99 was particularly beneficial to him. I'm a software engineer by trade, but I like a college degree, and only recently determined after years in my current field that I probably would have been better suited in a humanities profession. His passion, he says, is history. 99 is online education? That's the one. Okay. As a result, he is trying to self-educate himself in those areas that, at 50, I've discovered hold profound interest for me, and some type of online education seems particularly suited to my situation. Your podcast has been very refreshing and inspirational. I am constantly on the hunt for the types of discussions in which you all engage, but there are unfortunately very few to be found. He's a member of a Yahoo group that's progressing through the books of The Great Conversation, an Encyclopedia Britannica publication edited by Robert Hutchins, which contained their version of the Western canon, as well as some blogs that discuss literature in all its forms. He wants to know if we've ever listened to any lectures by Dr. Ronald Nash and or read any of his books. The name doesn't strike me. He wrote Worldviews in Conflict. It's kind of a classic freshman text at Christian colleges. Okay. I think I read – I didn't read that one. I read a different one when I was an undergrad. 
but I don't remember uh, much about it. Yeah. I know that name, and I'm I'm racking my brain, and I'm pretty sure that it goes back to my to my undergraduate days, and that's as far as I can get. But my my memory is dim. I also uh, want to say that I listened to some lectures he gave at Seattle Pacific University. Mm, okay, but that may not have been him. It may be another worldview guy. Mm-hmm. But he's one of the big worldview guys. Okay, all right, all right. Well, thanks for putting that in context. Yeah, and he said that he found his lectures to be engaging and educational. Okay. And then he cool. asked if there's any chance we're going to resurrect the forums. He seems to remember reading that we were having issues with spam and so disabled that feature on your website. Given my limited exposure to like-minded individuals, my wife just thinks I'm nuts, having an opportunity <laughs> to interact with others who share my interests would be fantastic. Oh goodness, Michael! I mean, we've we actually chatted about this while you were in town here in Georgia, and I mean, it, it's such a time-consuming affair to run a discussion board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, I I don't want to make any promises that I can't keep about that. I mean, I I know that I mean, eventually we gave up on it just because we didn't have time to post. And we weren't uh, get, we weren't getting that much going on there either. Right. 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 Well, to to do it well, as you know, as as I've understood it from listening, from you know, hearing you guys talk, because that that was the all's thing. I don't have the knowledge. Doing it well takes far more time than either of you have together to sink into that sort of thing. I mean, right, you know, this, right. Is, this is this is not our day job. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. I mean, as long as this remains a hobby, there's going to be certain yeah. things that are going to be out of our reach. But Steve, uh, um, if if you're if you're interested, I mean, one thing you could do is look at the comment sections on the blog post for the episodes, and usually a pretty good discussion happens there, especially if the if the topic has some controversy. Yeah, right. and also if you comment on any of our episodes, it will appear as one of the recent comments over in the right margin, so you can mm-hmm. bring threads back to life that you know started two years ago, year and a half ago, uh, without much, you know. Without much problem, right? You can get into the uh, the old boys club of our commentariat. <laughs> if, Char- yeah, if Charles H. It. and Rothgar will let you in, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean that that's really been. I mean, and I know we've gushed about this already, but I mean it's really cool that we've got listeners who are really engaging with our episodes uh, because I mean, really, those conversations have gone in directions that. The audio files themselves don't anticipate, and I just think that's great. So, yeah, uh, I'm going to continue to gush. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we should probably do a podcast today, though, guys. So, uh, <laughs> digging into this thing, you know, we were talking about the prophet Elijah. Uh, I wanted to do another Bible episode, uh, and David, uh, Hebrew names. Uh, mm. often have full sentences at their etymological roots, and Elijah is a good instance of that. Uh, what do the parts of the name Elijah mean, and what expectations would that name have set up for ancient people who hear his stories told and read out loud? Yeah, I mean, that, that's something cool about, um, about Hebrew names um, in, in, the, in, in the Bible, is very often there is some kind of, uh, some kind of significance there it's it, it, it often it's a hint at a theme um you know 
to to the point where, uh, especially in the Pentateuch, you have um, God actually stepping in and and renaming people so that they have names that are better suited to the story he wants them to be in. (laughs) Yes. Um, People like Abraham, who gets to be the father of multitudes after just being Abram, which is something to do with father, but doesn't have... Right, right. I mean, tribal father, basically. Yeah, and then Jacob, who's the supplanter, gets to become Israel, you know, the one who prevailed with God. Um, and Elijah is uh, Elijah is also one of those. Um, his name includes the elements of the two most common words. Um, well, most common? Well, the, the most common word for God in the Old Testament, um, El, or Elohim, um, that's the first element his, of his name, and it concludes with... Um, the, the, the Yah, um, is, or ja, uh, what's spelled Jah in, uh, in English, um, Bibles, is the beginning element of, uh, the sacred name for God, um, Yodhei um, often, often pronounced Yahweh. Um, mm-hmm. that's, the, and that's the end. So, um, you know, if you look it up in a Bible dictionary or something like that, frequently you'll see a definition that's a, that's of Elijah's name that's something like um, Yahweh is God or My God is Yahweh, um, right? So, something something on that order. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I I'd say that his his story lives up to <laughs> the ex, the expectations of of a character by that name. Um, that that that's basically his life's mission um, mm. is is to pursue um, the the supremacy of the name of 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 uh, of the Lord um, to take the usual English translation of that um, or the the English word that's often um, put in its place with the with the all capitals anywho's mm. um, yeah, and that that's that's basically the plot line of of of, uh, of Elijah's life, and also you know kind of comes up in a funny way that I hadn't noticed before later in one particular part of his story, but we'll we'll be looking at that in a bit. Yes, anything, yes. I... Anything else that you did, that you wanted to unpack there about that? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think you hit it pretty nicely. I mean the the idea that you know Elijah rises at a moment in the story where you know, there is a great uh, idolatry going on in the land, right? I mean, he right. he sort of, you know, becomes famous during the reign of King Ahab, who famously, you know, marries into politically expedient alliances, but also brings foreign gods into the northern kingdom. Right. Uh, so, I mean, the fact that at that moment in the story, a guy shows up whose name is, well, my god is Yah, <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> You know, he almost picks a fight yep. saying his name in a room, <laughs> right? Uh, especially yeah. the sorts of rooms that he tends to walk into. <laughs> I mean, his name is like his thesis, you know? Yeah, which, exactly, exactly. I, <laughs> which Prophet and wonder, prophecy are one. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which makes me wonder if he was born with that name. You think that perhaps he wasn't born this way? <laughs> sorry, well, sorry. I, I, well... <laughs> Okay. Go ahead. Go uh, ahead. I, I, I was just going to say that there are Hebrew Bible precedents for um, for people adopting names. Um, oh, absolutely! Yeah. yeah. When 
uh, when they, they enter a phase of their life um, and, and they, they want to actually mark their identity by it. Like uh, in the book of Ruth, when uh, Naomi, as a result of uh, the tragedy in her life, adopts the name Mara because she mm-hmm. doesn't think that Naomi is appropriate anymore. Um, yeah. she, you know, she wants to be known as the one who mourns or the bitter one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 I wondered when, when I was looking at this question as to whether, whether or not Elijah was born Elijah or whether mm-hmm. he decided to be Elijah. <laughs> That's interesting. Or if he was given the name Elijah so that he could go into rooms and announce his name. Right. That's fascinating. I've never really given that any thought. Michael, anything you would add? No, I, I was wondering that myself. But, uh, yeah. Either way, right? Oh, sure. Either I mean, way. it's a cool story either way you slice it. And, I mean, we're not going to be able to do all of the Elijah stories in this, you know, one episode. Uh, so, reader, readers, wow. Listeners, as we go along, I mean, you know, keep your ears open not only for that which we mentioned, but also which we leave unmentioned. Uh, you know, so you can comment on our show notes that we left out the most important story of Elijah and tell us why it's the most important. Cause that's always part of the fun part of the conversation, right? Yeah. Well, uh, one of them that I don't think anyone would neglect if they're telling the story of Elijah, uh, one of the most dramatic Elijah stories happens in first Kings 18. Uh, and that's an episode framed by a severe plague of drought. Uh, but really, I mean, what's memorable in that story is a visible contest of deities. Uh, Michael, what makes the Mount Carmel story so compelling and what literary features in there make it so fun for literature teachers like us and literate folks like our listeners? Well, it begins, you know, with, uh, with this confrontation between Ahab and Elijah in which they both blame each other for all the trouble that, that Israel has come under. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so it, it ends rather famously with this contest that you mentioned between Elijah and these prophets of Baal, these fa- these false prophets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe it's 450 prophets. That sounds about of, right, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a very large number versus Elijah because I, the implication, if not the outright statement, is that he's the only prophet of Yahweh left. Right, although you discover later on that there might be reinforcements but that's another story we'll talk about that later <laughs> Keep in, rolling. they're in hiding at least right yes yeah yes absolutely so i mean i think that is one thing that that people have responded to which is you have a classic underdog story you have mm. you, you have this single let's go ahead and say it half crazy mm-hmm. man versus 450 people who could easily rip them apart and that's just 450 prophets you also have the people of israel who are largely siding with the prophets Although, as the uh, as that story makes clear, they will side with whoever shows power. Yes, crowds they're, generally don't fare well in the Bible. Yeah, they're they're fairly <laughs> fickle people. Uh, yeah, before <laughs> and after Palm Sunday. Uh huh. Mm. So they build these two uh two altars on Mount Carmel, and they lay wood on the altars, and they slaughter oxen for sacrifices, and put them on the wood, and then um, Elijah says, "Hey, prophets of Baal, why don't you pray for fire from your god Baal, and I'll do the same." Um, but you guys go first and they pray all morning and nothing happens. And then, you know, the part everybody remembers from this story is Elijah making fun of them. Mm -hmm. He says, he says, maybe your God is asleep or maybe he's on the can or maybe he's away on vacation. 
Mm-hmm. I can't remember if he says maybe he's, on, he's. I'm sure he doesn't literally say maybe he's on the can, but I think isn't that the implication from right, right. It, it's the euphemism that appears there in the Hebrew, yeah, which is kind of yeah. awesome. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Well, at at this point, uh, nothing, right. still nothing happens. So to get Baal's attention, the prophets begin to cut themselves <laughs> and to otherwise harm themselves to get his attention, and that still doesn't happen. They keep going all the way till evening. Elijah presumably keeps making fun of them. Uh, and then, just to just to prove his point, he has the Yahweh altar drenched with water. Um, In the middle of the drought. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Uh, prays <laughs> calmly to God, and then all of a sudden, fire falls from the sky. You know, the water doesn't matter. The altar lights up. Uh, mm-hmm. The stones of the altar catch on fire. And then Ooh. he goes ahead and has those 450 prophets put to death. Um, and he prays for rain, and then the rain begins, and you know the the drought is over, and you know the 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 prophet of God has won out over these these many many false prophets. Mm-hmm. So I, again, in in terms of what what people what literary people like about it, I think is the the antipathies here. Antipathies is that the word antinomies. I, I clearly, our listeners will know have trouble with uh, literary terms. <laughs> I mean, there's antipathies, too, I suppose. We demonstrated that talking about Keats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you have the one man versus the many. You have the true versus the false. You have, you have water and fire. You have, you have the God that never slumbers and never sleeps versus the God that may very well be asleep. Or on the can. Yeah, or on the can, and and <laughs> all of all of these antinomies go to to proving the the truth and the presence of of the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of Elijah. Mm-hmm. You know, plus I think literary types like to imagine that the crowds are fickle, and so that part appeals to us as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the great mindless crowd is, I mean, such a a strong feature in literature that, you know, this is one of those stories where you've definitely got the mob as undifferentiated mass of, Oh, I don't even know what to call it. Meanness. Well, it's like uh, it's like the crowd scenes in Dumbo where they don't even have faces. It's just black silhouettes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the the people are to some extent unimportant in this story. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, but adding on to that, Michael, I mean, you know, one of the things that I like most about this is, you know, the threat uh, – that is always hovering over the story, right? I mean, we know that Jezebel is already plotting to end the life of Elijah at the mm-hmm. beginning of the story. Uh, and then, you know, in the midst of all that, you know, he has this grand theatrical and ultimately, you know, mocking gesture where he has eight jars of water poured on his altar in the middle of a drought that's been running for months and months. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's the moment in the story that I look at and I say, Oh man, you know, this is, that this is the grand gesture of grand gestures, right? I mean, these are people who uh, can't harvest their crops because there's no water, and here's eight jars of it. Uh, yeah. You know, I... <laughs> uh, oh, no, 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 it's even 12 jars. Yeah, it's 12 it? jars, four, four jars three times. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, then, you know, what you get... And, and it reminds me a great deal of the Exodus because you've got a contest of storm gods, right? Uh, In the Exodus, you know, you've got the contest between Yahweh and Pharaoh, right? You know, who can hit harder? And, you know, obviously Yahweh comes out ahead in that one. As he Uh, tends to in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He doesn't doesn't lose a lot of them. No, no. Uh, But in this one, you know, I mean, you've got Baal 
and and Michael and I say that differently. The the Hebrew is one of those consonant sounds that doesn't occur in English. It's a guttural uh, breath consonant. So it's actually two vowel sounds between the B and the L. Well, as as usual, I defer to you on Hebrew because I certainly don't know anything beyond what I was taught. Yeah. Well, I mean, I say that and, you know, knowing full well that the last time I taught Elijah to my teenagers at church, they were walking around the church making fun of me, you know, saying, hey there, Mr. Nathan. <laughs> so <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm like, no, there is no <laughs> there is no iron in my name. <laughs> Did you call down bears on them? I, no, no. Well, that's no, that's, that's do, a little later. I do oh, have a full right, head of hair, right. though, so I can't really do that. At least where, <laughs> so I... <laughs> it's a bold man power. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that contest between storm gods, you know, Baal, we know from Ugaritic literature, is the god of thunder and storms. Uh, so, I mean, this fire from heaven, you know, is probably something like, you know, Zeus's thunderbolt or, you know, uh, Thor's hammer, right? I mean, this would have been one of the signature weapons of Baal, and yet the prophets can't get, you know, Baal to throw down that weapon and to burn up the sacrifice, and yet, know you know, that. Yahweh does it with only a calm prayer. So, I mean, I, I, I love that feature of this story, and I mean, it, it reminds me, as so many things do, of something that, you know, Walter Brueggemann wrote. He said that, you know, the prevailing intellectual culture that surrounds the Hebrew Bible is a thoroughgoing polytheism, and, you know, what the prophets are always struggling against is that polytheism. You mm-hmm. know, I mean... This story doesn't work if you don't have most of Israel assuming that there is a Baal and an Asherah and so on and so forth. So uh, that's one of the things I really like about it. David, is there anything you'd want to chime in on? Well, I think it's um, – I, I, I like to think that if we were there and it's – you know, if, if, if you heard it in Hebrew, it would be clear. But what, uh, what the crowds shout after the fire falls uh-huh. – um, you know the lord he is god the lord he is god and and what the, what they're shouting is essentially the, el- Elijah, the, the elements Elijah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah essentially they're shouting the elements in Elijah's name it's the end you of know. rocky <laughs> it's kind of like that but I, I mean they're not they're not shouting Elijah you know if you look it up in the hebrew it's it's not exactly the same i can't re- read hebrew but i can recognize letters Right, and so right. I looked it up and said, "Nope, not the same." <laughs> <laughs> but at the very least, you know, if you haven't noticed in, up to this point in Elijah's story what his name means and how that fits with what he does, um, you should notice it now because now everyone is shouting Elijah's thesis. You know, whether he gave himself that name or whether he was given that name. This is the purpose of his life encoded in his name. And now everyone is shouting in agreement. And you've got to think that at that moment, he thought, this is what I was born for. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the moment at which, you know, everything I've dreamed of, of some kind of restoration. Now it's coming true because everyone is shouting the truth that my name signifies. Right. And that that had to be such an amazing moment. Mm-hmm. But I was just thinking about the general unpleasantness of the Hebrew prophets. <laughs> Go ahead. You you know I mean 
Elijah is not the most unpleasant. <laughs> I mean, there there are there are ones who were meaner than him, and there are ones who were crazier than him. But mm. his mocking of the uh, prophets of Baal and his—I guess he should put them to death. I guess that's how things work. You gotta you gotta weed out the uh, the sources of apostasy in your in your people when you're God's chosen nation. But you know, it's just people single out Elisha having those uh, bears maul those kids as though he were the only Hebrew prophet to do unpleasant things. But in fact, they're all, they're all ornery old cusses. <laughs> or young in Jeremiah's case. Yeah. Well, and Jeremiah, I was going to say is less ornery and, and more just depressed. <laughs> just like, just like uh, Ezekiel is less ornery and more, you know, insane. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> well, I don't think Elijah's any more ornery than Jezebel is. Well, that's true. And I, I, I suppose I would also be ornery if I had to live out in the mountains fed by ravens. Right, right. Well, and honestly, I mean, she's another fascinating character because, I mean, you got to think that she is the, you know, the princess of the great Carthaginian Empire, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. by this point in history, Carthage is a Mediterranean-spanning Republic, yeah, or not republic, but I mean, it, it's certainly a commercial empire with a council of elders, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, uh, she is familiar with, I mean, the ruthless, ruthlessness and the brutality that comes with power. Uh, and then, you know, then she comes into this royal family of this, you know, provincial kingdom, you know, where she has to keep telling Ahab how to be a proper gang boss. <laughs> and you know, I mean, I, and I, that's why I love that relationship, right? Because no matter you know, and there's all sorts of bad things to say. You know, I'm not going to deny it about the Northern Kingdom and about their idolatry and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but I mean, the House of Jeroboam compared to the emperors of Carthage are decidedly bush league. And yeah. you know, Jezebel <laughs> is you know, hey, look, look, you got to whack this guy. You got, you know, I. <laughs> You can't jack around with these prophets. You got to kill them before they become trouble. And then Ahab is always, you know, off moping and doing all that kind of stuff. But I don't want to give away too much of our stuff here. So, uh, but again, I mean, just so much good stuff just in this one story that I mean, I, I I considered when I was mapping this out, making this just the episode itself. But there, there's there's be... lots more story and or lots more character moments in the story than people think there are. Oh, there really are. There really are. Uh, and again, you know, I mean, part of that comes from the fact that a lot of us encounter this for the first time as children in Sunday school, sure. where they can't do a whole lot of the deep character development. But it's definitely First uh, Kings 18 is definitely a chapter worth revisiting as an adult to see all the cool stuff going on there. Well, anyway, like I said, mm-hmm. we got to be disciplined. So David, immediately after the Mount Carmel story, Elijah has to flee the agents of Jezebel. Uh, and we get a brief string of episodes that, among other things, gives us that lovely phrase from the King James Bible, a still small voice. Uh, mm. What's the context in which that phrase happens, and what's going on in Elijah's larger story that makes the phrase important? Mm. Yeah, Je- Jezebel apparently was not intimidated by fire from heaven. Nah. Um <laughs> a consistent theme in the story of Elijah, by the way, people not being afraid of fire falling from the heavens. Yeah. She yeah, says, I mean, it takes... she says, what, is that all you got? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I just burned up your guys. What? 
Surprise! Fire from Heaven, surprisingly less effective than one might think. Um, so yeah, yeah, Jezebel puts a price on his head, promises to chop his, you know, chop his head off, um, kill him like like he killed all of her prophets, and so um, you know he hightails it and uh, eventually finds himself um, uh, finds himself in a cave. And uh, here at the text, the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of the hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he, that is God, said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So he goes to... Um, well, he goes to the mountain of the Lord. Uh, he goes to Horeb. Um, and there the Lord passes by, and there's a great strong wind that's tearing the mountains and, and the rocks, and there's an earthquake, and there's fire. Um, but the Lord is not in the wind, and the Lord is not in the earthquake, and the Lord is not in the fire. And it's after all of this amazing natural phenomena that you get... Um, what King James calls the still small voice, which is way better than the ESV's version, a low whisper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, it's just a disappointing translation. <laughs> well, so many things are once you've seen the King James. Well, yeah. So, yes, the glorious King James. Um, the, biggest th the biggest thing is uh, that this is, this is a return to, uh, to the mountain of the Lord. This is a return to Horeb. Um, this is a return to the site um, on which Moses um, received the law and saw the burning bush. So if there's any place in the world where Elijah would expect God to speak from an earthquake or from a cloud, or a storm, or a fire. This is that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. And it seems like maybe all of his life he's 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 kind of thought maybe maybe he's thought that's what that that's what I'm for. Um, you know, you have in uh, I believe it's Deuteronomy, um, Moses. Um, Moses makes the prophecy that one day there will be another prophet like me, mm -hmm. you know, and he'll accomplish all of these things. Um, you know, you, you, the, the um, Hebrew Bible is not giving you a whole lot of internal dialogue for these characters, but you wonder maybe, maybe Elijah thought he was that guy. And maybe he thought when fire comes down and they kill the prophets of Baal, maybe he thought this is that moment of great triumph. But, Things don't turn out the way uh, the way he hoped. Um, possibly, he seems to be demoralized because all it takes is a threat, you know. And the guy that faced down, you know, vast numbers of people one day is running away from, you know, a distant threat the next day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, so when it, when I look at this passage and God doesn't speak to him out of the whirlwind or out of the earthquake or out of the fire, but instead there's the small voice. Um, I have a hard time not reading it as God telling him tacitly, you know, you don't get to be Moses. Mm -hmm. That isn't the way things are going to go this time. 
you know. And uh, and so the the instruction that Elijah is given at this point um, is uh, to anoint, you know, an anoint a successor for himself, anoint a king of Syria, anoint a king of Israel, and basically everyone he anoints is going to be judging Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, he isn't going to be the prophet of restoration. He's going to be prophet that sets. Uh, that sets in motion three different kinds of judgment from three different directions. And yet God will uh, preserve 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's that's what I get out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what am I missing? Mike, I'll let you add before I jump in. You know, I... Um... I have a bipolar disorder, and I've always thought of this story as the depression after the mania. Mm. Mm. There, there's something, there's something very sad about it. He, he's, he's just had the the greatest victory of his career. A career seems like a weird word to use, but whatever. And yet he is forced to go, you know, back to a cave, where mm-hmm. he sits and doesn't hear God for a long time. Yeah, I, <laughs> that is true. That is true. And and what's fascinating, though, is that, you know, after this moment where, you know, all of the great signs that were there at the Exodus, right, uh, mm-hmm. are not the presence of God, right? Because, I mean, when Moses is up on Horeb, you know, I mean, there is cloud and there is fire and the earth shakes and all this good stuff. Uh, but Elijah, you know just gets the still small voice like David was saying. But then, I mean, immediately he is told not only to play Samuel and, you know, appoint a new King while there's still a King on the throne. Uh, he's not only told to appoint his own successor indicating that his own time is drawing to an end. Uh, but he's also called to go and meddle in international politics, right? Uh, (laughs) you know, your next job is to go and, you know, anoint a new King of, Syria. <laughs> so, I mean, in my mind, I mean, that's the, the scariest part of all of it, right? I mean, because uh, although obviously, you know, Tyre, the city of Jezebel, is the great international power at this point in history, Syria is no joke either. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, a, a, a couple generations later in Isaiah's day, I mean, they are the great geopolitical threat to Israel, right? So... Uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're nothing to meddle with. And yet, you know, that's exactly what Yahweh tells him. You know, uh, your next job is to appoint a new king there. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I love the fact that that doesn't actually get narrated because, you know, I mean, you can imagine it going something like the way that Samuel's story went, you know, when he had to go anoint a new king over Israel. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you tell the king of Damascus? What are you in town for, Israelite prophet? Oh, you know, going to take this young man, uh, you know, out to make some sacrifices to <laughs> a god that's not his own. <laughs> right? I Don't mind <laughs> <again>. me. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I mean, that's the part that's fascinating to me. But I mean, I, I think you guys, I mean, hit the, the core of that story very well. So I don't feel any to add a whole lot to that um well i do want to make one 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 point that if if you keep reading 
Um, and second, you know, the story continues on. Uh-huh. Um, Elijah, Elijah anoints Elisha, but he never visits Jehu and he never visits, you know, that Syrian dude. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's Elisha that ends up anointing or not, not, not necessarily anointing the Syrian guy, but telling him you're going to be king hereafter, at which point the Syrian guy assassinates the, the reigning monarch. Uh-huh. You know, and Elisha commissions one of his little sidekick dudes to like sprint into Jehu's camp or 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 headquarters or whatever, anoint him very quickly, and then run away. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, you know, so uh, Elijah does, you know, he does kind of set in motion what results in that, but he doesn't do it himself. You know, it's it's right, even more, right. even more, uh, what you call, um. He he has less and less to do with what God's setting forth in the world. Of course, there's a, the, the the implication is that Elisha is kind of the second coming of Elijah, right? Right down to their names. Right. 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 So, um, all right. Well, moving on. I mean, Elijah's exit is just as notable as you know any other of his stories. Uh, Michael, how does he depart the earth, and how does this mode of exit connect to his relationships to other characters in First and Second Kings? Well, I think most importantly, it connects to his relationship with Elisha, who is his assistant prophet, if if such a position exists. <laughs> and this all takes place in Second Kings chapter two, and it, it begins in a funny way because it says, and I'm going to read from the King James because you've already uh, made fun of the uh, other versions. <laughs> and it came to pass when the Lord would take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And that is a really weird way to begin because it seems like a standing appointment that Elijah and, <laughs> and God have had. And yeah. it, like, it doesn't come as a surprise to anyone because two or three people, when, El- when Elisha's walking with Elijah, stop and tell him, hey, by the way, did you know that the Lord is going to take your master away? And Elisha's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I know it. <laughs> so I mean, this, this is this is, a, this is apparently something a lot of people know about that we just haven't gotten any sign from before. But what's interesting? Uh-huh. What's interesting to me is both Elijah and these other prophets who they keep running into keep telling him, by the way, he's leaving. Yeah, as if I didn't know it. Um, try to get Elisha to to walk away, you know, and he won't do it. He just keeps following him. Mm-hmm. He uh he he won't he won't leave Elijah alone because I, I you know Elijah's his mentor his father figure however you want to whatever you know patronizing terms you want to use and what you get there is a literal passing of the mantle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because God's and I didn't know I didn't know this is where that phrase came from frankly um but it, it is um so you get this chariot of fire that descends and and takes Elijah up to heaven. You know, one of only two people in the Hebrew Bible to go to heaven without dying, him and Enoch, about whom we know almost nothing. Mm-hmm. And Elisha is grieved, and he, he, he mourns, but then he sees that Elijah's mantle, his, um, how would you describe a mantle, guys? It's like a, a ceremonial, clothing. uh, it's, uh yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like a, like a priest wears, not yeah, the yeah, not like, the robe, but the the kind of the scarf. And, the stole and, is the name of that garment. And he and he picks it up and he hits the water with it, 
And he says, where is Elijah? Where is the God of Elijah? And the waters part. And this is, this is Elisha's confirmation as a prophet. And so, so like I said, you, you get a literal passing of the mantle where Elijah's ministry becomes Elisha's ministry. So it's no surprise that he's the one who goes and talks to the Syrian king. Mm-hmm. Because, because in a real sense, even though Elijah has moved on, we, we have the, the passing of authority to, to a new generation of prophets. And what's mm-hmm. even more interesting is, the, is one of the next things that happens. He goes and does a couple miracles, and the next thing that happens is the, uh, the bears. The bears. bears. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if you're not sure what to make of that passage, uh, maybe knowing that it comes so soon after Elisha's calling mm-hmm. and confirmation makes it even more difficult to interpret. Right, and by the way, the taunt of the young men is almost universally badly translated. Oh, yeah? I mean, not not in terms of getting the Hebrew wrong. It's just very hard to render insults in a language that's not original. How would you, how would you have uh, I wouldn't. translated it? <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I mean, some of these translations are comical. I mean, I'm not even talking like, you know, the message or something like that. But, I mean, just for instance, you know, the New International Version is... Get out of here, Baldy. <laughs> Is it really? Man. <laughs> go up, go up, you bald head. Well, that's that's the King James, go up, thou bald head. Yeah, and that one, I mean, it at least sounds kind of King Jamesy. but I'm looking at the message now, you know, what's up, old bald head? Out of our way, skinhead. Skinhead. <laughs> Man. I mean, it really is. I mean, I, you know, maybe I, I just, you know. And I've, without the courage to translate myself, you know, of you course know, I make fun yourself, of other translators, though. but <laughs> mm. you brought that on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's just one of those translation theory things. There are certain structures of speech that are just harder to translate than others. And insults happen to be one of them. Mm hmm. But the other thing that I love about this, and again, I, I like the weird stuff in the Old Testament. I mean, that's why I, you know, did my first graduate degree in Old Testament because I wanted some kind of framework to make sense of this. But I mean, the fact that there are, you know, bands of prophets just wandering the land, it's like, okay, what are these guys doing? You know, I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but I mean, they're back there, you know, generations before, you know, I mean, that's, you know, at the calling of Saul, you know, I mean, he goes bananas and starts dancing with the prophets and it's like okay what why are there prophets wandering around what there's are they so doing much, there's so much crazy hillbilly stuff in the books of kings <laughs> right i mean all this backwoods fundamentalist religion it's like a flannery o'connor short story <laughs> these guys are out there dipping their faces in quicklime all right yeah. so, so now now jezebel has become holga yeah well Oof. kind of right <laughs> Or the, the, go ahead. The 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 ugly girl in the waiting room who just can't stand all of their faces. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. These are not the connections I anticipated going into this episode, guys. But they're great. I, I love it. Well, I, I I've always I I never read that as 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 you know kind of like hillbilly fundamentalist. I always kind of saw it as prophets were like rock stars. You know. And so you, you, you'd have um, Samuel, this, you know, 
kind of original rock star prophet, and he's got his posse, you know, <laughs> kind of goes around with him, and, you know, presumably Elijah had his prophet posse too, you know. I, I, I just, I, I think that's, I think that's neat, you know, <laughs> just the idea that, that he, they weren't really completely alone. They're, they actually had fans mm-hmm. or people who wanted to be like them or to, to some degree even were like them. Mm-hmm. Which, which is interesting in a story where the mantle is passed, right? In, in, this, in the story mm-hmm. where Elijah almost literally becomes Elisha, at least in terms of function. Right. right. You have these other guys who might like to be prophets, but all they get to be is the sons of prophets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although, although the best analogy I've seen for Old Testament politics is uh, Robert Pinsky, uh, you know, the former po- poet laureate, wrote a, a book about David. Uh, I mean, it was just titled David. Uh, but he compares the the court politics in First and Second Samuel and First Kings to a gangster movie. And it's like, okay, that kind of makes sense. You know, I mean, Saul keeps sending him, you know, out on these, you know, uh, you know, these hits, right? You know, I need you to go get 200 Philistine foreskins. And, you know, the expectation is, well, of course, he's going to get whacked in the process. But he comes back, yeah. you know. So I, I thought that was kind of neat. I, <laughs> Ooh, I never well, connected rate, that. Apparently David learned so so David learned that that whole you know how to whack a guy without whacking a guy, he learned that from oh Saul. yeah yeah that he that he pulls on Uriah oh yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> never thought about that well and then of course you know the beginning of First Kings I mean what's the first thing that Solomon does he he whacks the people that need whacked <laughs> so I'm telling you it works if you think about it <laughs> crazy well anyway David um. Even after Second Kings 2 comes and goes, the Bible is not done with Elijah, of course. We've talked about Elisha as an extension of his story. But talk to us for a moment about another moment where Elijah resurfaces in the Bible and how his monarchical period character informs the later episode. Mm. But Elijah pretty much drops out of the story up until the very last um well, what's what's the 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 last book of uh, of the the minor prophets? Well, you know the shorter prophets, we'll call them. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 kind of round out uh, the Old Testament canon, Malachi, um, and it's literally the you know if if you have a a Bible with you know an old and a New Testament, literally the very last thing that you read before switching to the Gospel according to Matthew is. Mm-hmm. Chapter four, uh, tra- chapter four of Malachi. Um, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil doers will be stubble. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Um, so it's this 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 day of judgment that's being foretold, um, a day in which the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Uh, the wicked will be tread down. And then, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn mm-hmm. the hearts of father to their fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Um, 
That's that's the ESV. Strike the land with a curse, I think is what the King James says. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this idea that God God isn't done with Elijah, um, you know, even even to the point where uh, there there were uh, there there kind of sprang up beliefs that um, when God took Elijah up in the chariot, he was kind of you know keeping him off in you know some hidden pocket where he could bring him out again when he needed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and the idea that Elijah the prophet would come and prepare the way for that great day of judgment and restoration, which perhaps Elijah thought he was for, you know, mm-hmm. he seemed to think, you know, maybe, well, I think it's likely that he saw that as his purpose, but it wasn't at that time. But uh, Malachi 4 or 5 seems to indicate that, yeah, Elijah the prophet um, is the one who co- who returns and who is sent to uh, to prepare for the great and awesome day of the Lord, um, and he has something to do with familial relationships. It's a, it's a it's an interesting idea: turning hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers. Um, it's a, it, I'm not entirely sure what to make of that. Maybe the Hebrew has some has something that you can enlighten me on there. Um, I didn't prep that passage, so I, I'm going to have to apologize and say it very well might. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, at, at any rate, Elijah's Elijah's role seems to be one of calling for repentance, calling for a restoration of some kinds of some kind of relationships between people, because if those things, if those relationships are not restored, if order does not come, then the land is struck with a curse, mm-hmm. struck with a decree of destruction. Um, so what exactly uh, what exactly Malachi meant? Well, you have to keep reading, but yeah, the idea that there's there's more there's more to the story of Elijah um, is is the last thing that you get um, in the Old Testament, at least in the arrangement of the canon as we've got it in our Bibles now. Mm-hmm. Is that where Malachi would have been if you were reading um, a Tanakh? Oh, that is hard to say. I mean, in a modern Tanakh, no. Uh, the okay. modern Tanakh ends not with the uh, Nevi'im, but with the Kethuvim. So it okay. actually ends with Second Chronicles. Uh, okay. But, I mean, it is really hard to say how the scrolls would have been arranged in a first century synagogue because the Christians and the rabbinic Jews, by and large, spent several centuries defining themselves against each other. So whatever right. one did, the other one did the opposite. <laughs> so it's real stinking hard to reconstruct what was going on in the first century. Speaking of antipathies and antinomies, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nicely played, nicely played. Yeah, I mean, you basically had a century and a half, you know, two, two or two or three centuries of this. Uh, anything you can do, we can do better. Um, kind of. Exactly. I... <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. like I said, just a booger to reconstruct. Um, another passage uh, that's, and really, it's a series of passages. It's worth noting is the strong connection between John the Baptist and Elijah. Uh, the mm. Gospel of Mark begins with, you know, a couple of visual cues uh, that John the Baptist, you know, wears uh, camel skins and a leather belt that he eats locusts. These are all details from the Elijah narrative. Uh, he's decidedly someone who comes, uh, and I, I can't remember, I think it was David who said this, you know, his job is not to preach the 
rise of Israel, but rather the judgment upon Israel uh, for departing from its calling. Uh, so, I mean, John the Baptist is decidedly mm. a figure who, you know, is bringing that judgment. And what's fascinating about it, and I'm, I'm not going to dwell on every passage uh, in which this occurs, but, uh, you know, everyone remembers that in the uh, famous, you know, scene at Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Uh, among the possibilities that are proposed is Elijah, right? Mm-hmm. Or one of the other prophets. What fewer people remember is that when Herod starts to panic uh, because he's had John the Baptist beheaded, and all of a sudden there's this wandering teacher proclaiming the kingdom of God and attracting crowds of disciples in Galilee, uh, he asked the people the same series of questions. Who is this person? Uh, and they say, you know, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, so on and so forth. But what Herod says is, no, he's got to be John the Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, but for Herod, Herod, Herod has a John the Baptist complex. Oh, well, yeah. I, I, Wouldn't I, you? I he would, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, for him, you know, he is the zombie John. Uh, who is coming back for his revenge on the unjust king who executed him, right? Uh, But it's fascinating that, you know, that was a live possibility, not only for the followers of Jesus, but also for uh, Herod, who is an Idumean king, you know, not affiliated with the Pharisees, so not someone who would be especially uh, inclined to be concerned with biblical prophecy, right? Um, Who is dead? But, you know, I mean, what now? So his dad was in the Matthew narrative. Uh, to some extent he was, yes, although he was more concerned with what the Magi said. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's one of those things. Uh, you know, his scholars, yeah, you know, pulled up the prophet Micah and said, aha, Bethlehem. Uh, but, you know, yeah. I, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, it, it's one of those things where, you know, Herod the Tetrarch, you know, uh, is presented with the possibility as well that this might, might be Elijah risen from the grave. And of course, you know, uh, when Jesus is asked, you know, if he is Elijah, you know, he famously says, uh, Elijah has already come, you know, now what comes next will not be Elijah. So, uh, you know, it's, it, that's another one of those echoes, uh, you know, obviously several generations, centuries really after Malachi, uh, where Elijah resurfaces in the Bible. Uh, Michael? Won't you give us our last resurfacing here? The Transfiguration, where Jesus, Peter, James, and John go up on the top of a mountain, and then Jesus is, as the Bible puts it, face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And then Moses and Elijah Elijah appear. And I assume they appear because Moses is the representation of Hebrew law, and Elijah is the representation of Hebrew prophets. He's the if not the greatest, one of the greatest anyway. Right, right. And then, and also, I mean, in those two figures, you have the two great prophets of the tradition. Yeah. But then, then you have, you have the passage you just alluded to, which is the disciples ask him, how come the biblical scholars say that Elijah has to come first? And, and Jesus says, well, Elijah's already come and they didn't recognize him and they did whatever they wanted to, to him. Mm -hmm. And and uh, he's he's talking there, of course, about John the Baptist, not about the historical Elijah. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't have and much insight into this passage. It's, it's just always been interesting to me that Elijah appears because 
I guess if I were going to pick a, a, a chief prophet, it probably would have been Isaiah, since he had the longest prophetic book, and we have nothing that Elijah wrote. Right, right. Or the prophet Nathan, because he came before Elijah, or, you know, something else. But yeah, you're right. I mean, Elijah becomes the great prophet of the monarchical period in that passage. And, you know, he's the one they leave the, the chair for at Passover. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, of course, every smart aleck kid in every Sunday school class asks, well, how did they know what Elijah looked like? <laughs> oh, so that's a good point. <laughs> oh, okay, so you, so you guys didn't have a, a Nate Gilmore in your Sunday school classes growing up? No. I, assume, I assume they just knew the way you know in dreams. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I, <laughs> you know, well, I mean, it's yeah, easy. Moses had horns. Elijah had a crow on his shoulder. Nice. A raven. <laughs> if you can't tell the difference between a raven and a crow, David, you haven't been paying enough attention. Oh, man. <laughs> Hark, ravens. <laughs> uh, I mean, that'll, that'll lead us into next week, huh? Mm. Oh, come on now. Don't be scooping it. Don't be scooping it. We've still got show to record here. There's also, uh, um, there's also the scene at the crucifixion. When Jesus yells out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And oh, they're yeah. like, hey, he's that. calling for Elijah. And somebody in my old Sunday school class in Athens pointed out, that's because that phrase in Aramaic must have sounded like Elijah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it does. Yeah. I'd never thought of that before, but it's it's kind of brilliant. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't some sort of grand theological statement. They just misunderstood him because he's been hanging on a cross for several hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It yeah. probably sounds like the end of a Rocky movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're probably right. I'm not going to do that impression, but if you'd yeah, like to, you're welcome either. to. <laughs> yeah. Are, are there storm clouds in Franklin Springs? I would... <laughs> All right. Well, looking at the time, we probably need to take this sucker home. Uh, Michael, one of the trendy adjectives, and perhaps the most overused, but that's hard to measure of the last decade among young evangelicals and post-evangelicals is prophetic. Uh, Now, when we were doing show prep, you pointed out to me that they bummed it off of the civil rights movement, so you can talk about that if you want to. But pulling from the Elijah that we've discussed so far and adding whatever else you want to from this prophet's biblical career, talk to us a bit about what Elijah teaches us about really being prophetic. Well, um, it's interesting because Elijah is not the pro- not a prophet in the way we think of prophets. He does not make a lot of predictions about the future. I believe he makes a few, but that's not his primary role. His primary role seems to be, as the black church puts it, to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. So he's always that's why he's always clashing with Ahab. Now, now, the truth he's speaking is not primarily a political truth, although the line between politics and theology in ancient Israel is a thin and blurred one. Mm-hmm. But um, he he is frequently speaking truth to power, and so when the uh, when the black church picks up on that term for its uh, for its mouthpieces is too cynical a word, but you know for the people who lead those movements, I think it's a legitimate use of the term, especially especially in the case of somebody like Martin Luther King, who really is doing a combination of political and theological movements. Mm-hmm. Oh, now, absolutely, yeah. Now, I, I'm afraid what gets left out too often, though, is the theological component to what Elijah is doing. It's not as it's not as though Norma Ray, for example, is prophetic in the Elijah sense of it, right? And I'm all mm. in favor of Norma Ray. I'm all in favor of the unions. I'm all in favor of liberal causes, but not every liberal cause is going to be 
is going to be prophetic. Not every, in fact, speaking truth to power is going to be prophetic. That mm-hmm. that, that seems to me to be a, a term reserved for theolog- speaking theological truth to power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think that, that terminology bothers me as much as it bothers you, Nathan. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely one of my pet peeves, so... Um... Well, you know, there's there's something fishy about anybody calling themselves a prophet. That that's certainly true. <laughs> that, that 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 seems like trouble to me. Right. I I much prefer to echo Amos and say I'm neither a prophet nor a son of a prophet. <laughs> Although some people have called me a son of a no, I <laughs> I won't go prophet there. Prophet was what you were going to say. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I... <laughs> son of a prophet. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> David, is there anything you'd add? Um, I mean, I, 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 I think, it, you know, I, I, I can see both points. I mean, one of the things that Elijah is, um, I mean, it's, it does seem as if his, his, his prophetic role is mainly the, to be the one who stands up and tells the king, no, uh, uh-uh. uh, yeah, right. Or the, or the queen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He really calling the shots. Says his own name very loud. I think I yeah. think there's uh, I think there's young Christians who do that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, so, so so I mean, in, in one hand, yeah, he's he's that kind of prophet. He's not the in the last days these things shall be. It's a, he doesn't right. seem to be doing that. Um, he, you know, he is, you know the voice of God to the king and kind of the way that Nathan was, uh, I think. I think there's something similar there. All right, the um, biblical prophet, not me. Yes, the biblical prophet, Nathan, not the not the youth Nathan. Um, <laughs> but at, at, at the same time, I think um, focusing on that to the exclusion of the fact that he actually does have a divine commission that's very clear and is made clear through evident signs and wonders all right he's not merely wandering around saying my preferred political or social reforms are thus saith the lord you know mm-hmm. the, the, so far as we can tell you know while while elijah may pass the mantle onto elisha he didn't initially take up the mantle himself right and that that's that's important to me. Um, it's 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 important to me that you don't devalue um, that idea of divine commissioning that goes into, you know, being a prophet. Um, I that yeah I I I I think if 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 you if you emphasize too much the str- the speaking truth to power, um, it becomes something that anyone can do if they're sufficiently riled right and right. I don't, yeah. and I don't think that I don't think that's how we're supposed to be viewing Elijah as this is the guy that just got riled up enough the, mm-hmm. you know, the other thing is you better take a long hard look at what the lives of the prophets look like yeah before <laughs> you before you claim that for yourself and as we were saying earlier you better stop making appeals to the court of public opinion if you want to call yourself prophetic, you better be ready to live in a cave with no friends at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And right. I, or, I think, I think too often, too often calling yourself prophetic is a way of garnering, uh, public acclaim rather than 
going against it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, honestly, the abuses of that adjective that I've, I got so sick of during the Bush administration uh, weren't necessary claims for oneself to be a prophetic voice, but it's to claim that some very public, very vocal jerk whose views you happen to agree with is a prophetic voice because he doesn't care about politeness or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always thought, well, no, that's not prophetic. That's just jerky. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, and, and, you know, I mean, and then, you know, it, it just got into the silly game where, you know, and this was before Facebook. So people would do this on message boards. Um, as we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, uh, but you know, people would post links to their favorite belligerent columnist and say, "Oh, here's a prophetic voice, you know, uh, who's not afraid to be a jerk to people that I don't like already." <laughs> he has the guts <laughs> to say what everybody's already thinking. Yeah, yeah, uh huh. <laughs> and so, I mean, I and and I'll admit, I mean that that really really soured me on the adjective prophetic as used for contemporary figures because. I saw it abused so regularly, but I mean, Michael, I mean, your, your appeal to the civil rights movement, I mean, rightly checks my, my jaundiced view of things because I, you know, that really is something that does have a more honorable history than, than that. So I mean, the, the internet the, got a hold of it. The question is, how do you feel when Cornell West talks about being prophetic? Oh God, I like Cornell West so much that I, <laughs> I, I have trouble getting mad at him. So I, <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, well, I mean, you know, the jokes, and obviously that. these jokes made more sense back in 2008 before he became president. But the jokes about how, you know, anyone who's in the hall when Obama speaks falls in love with him. Like, that's me and Cornell West. Like, uh, in the abstract, I can resist his ideas. But then I hear him start <laughs> talking, and I mean, I, <laughs> I'm powerless. I, I would actually, I would give him more credit than a lot of people because he is one of the very few public Democrats to really speak out against the Obama administration. Yeah, and, like and calling he come, him a criminal. <laughs> he he comes under an enormous amount of fire for it, and I mean, mm. I, I've got my problems with Cornell West. The man is as self-promotional as is possible to be before your head actually turns into a hot air balloon. <laughs> but. He was in the Matrix sequels, for pity's sake. But but it, but at the same time, I mean, th- this is a guy who was willing to take unpopular stands for, I think, legitimately theological reasons a lot of the time. Yeah, and, I think so too. And, and so, I, I mean, really, if there is a if there is a public intellectual that I feel comfortable giving that title to, it probably is Cornell West. Right, right. Just don't ask me to criticize him because, like I said, it's 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 the siren song as soon as he starts talking. <laughs> <laughs> Bro- brother, uh, brother Gilmore. Yeah, oh. <laughs> is that your life's goal to be called Brother Must Gilmore by Cornell West? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my uh, my brother Ryan, who was a guest host on our uh, sta- our stage comedy episode a couple summers ago, uh, was actually at a roundtable discussion and got to have a conversation with Cornell West and was addressed by Cornell West as little brother. That's awesome. We got to do a Cornell West episode sometime. Clearly. Oh gosh, I. <laughs> I, I will be utterly useless if we do one. I, <laughs> no, he really is. I mean, I don't know if you guys have uh, intellectuals like that where in the abstract you know that there's something wrong with their ideas, but they're such powerful rhetoricians that they're beyond your power t- to oppose. Maybe I'm <laughs> the only one. Okay, I, <laughs> I'll grant that. Uh, I don't. I don't know. There, there might. There, I, maybe there are people like that for me. Uh, I, I'd have. I'd have to think about that. 
That would be All another right. good topic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to. Can I not resist? Uh, no, but I mean, I, I'm not proud of this. I mean, I, you know, it's a bit of shame for someone who tries to teach students to evaluate all sources of wisdom critically. But uh, yeah, Cornell West, I'm telling you. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, that that's one of those things that um, when prophetic becomes synonymous with publicly jerky, that's when I have a problem with the adjective prophetic. That so. makes sense. I mean, it, it, I'm I'm sure it's an overused adjective, but I think I, you know, I I, I like that it it still gets used. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I can live with that. Well, that is about all we got time for, guys. So I want to thank Doctor Michael Farmer as well as David Grubbs. Uh, David, what's on tap for next week? Well, um, a while back, uh, one of our readers, I'm trying to recollect who, um, asked if we could, was it, was it, okay, all right, this is for you, Charles, um, asked if we would do an episode on Poe, and, um, yeah, I thought, okay, um, which, I'm, I'm sorry, Michael, I'm not trying to, you know, rain on, rain on your triumphal parade. Admit Um, it, you are. But I kind of am trying to rain on your triumphal parade. <laughs> you hate you hate seeing me happy, so we have to do a Poe episode. Uh, yeah, but I also kind of think you love to hate Poe, so so I think it'll be a good time. <laughs> so yeah. Well, yeah, I hope you're week, happy, po. Charles H. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, that's what's on tap for next time. Uh, between now and then, you can, of course, find us at the Christian or at www.christianhumanist.org. Our email is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on iTunes. Uh, we hope that you will give us good ratings in both of those places. We are still approaching that magical 200 thumbs up number on Facebook, which would be most excellent to reach. I uh, mm. want to give another thanks to Trip Fuller, who keeps tweeting every time he listens to one of our episodes on stitcher remember that's a new platform where you can catch your christian humanist episodes uh and if you are coming over to us through stitcher because of of trips links welcome aboard comment on the blog join us man the water's fine uh all of that said i want to leave you in behalf of michael farmer and david grubbs with the words of martin luther let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger Elijah was a wooden Indian standing by the door. He fell in love with an Indian maid over in the antique store. Elijah just stood there and never let it show. So she could never answer yes or no. He always wore his Sunday feathers and held a Tommy home.